Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and thank you for being here. This week on the podcast, we have screenwriter, critic, and podcaster himself, Andy Greenwald. Despite creating an impressive body of work writing about music at Spin Magazine in the early 2000s, Andy came to prominence right around the time Grantland opened its doors. The beloved Bill Simmons-operated publication offered Andy an outpost to write long-form pieces of criticism about contemporary television. In the conversation you're about to hear, Greenwald admits, almost at the top, to being skeptical of this idea at first, which was pitched to him by childhood best friend Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman. Andy loved television. He wanted to write television, though, not write about it. But it wasn't long until Andy found himself taking to the position at ESPN's Digital Venture. For more than two years, Greenwald wrote authoritatively on TV at a time when people were more interested in reading about the latest HBO show than they were about what's playing in a movie theater near them. Greenwald now finds himself on the Mount Rushmore of TV critics, alongside Emily Nussbaum, Matt Zollerseitz, and Alan Sepinwall. In fact, Andy was so good at picking apart serialized programs that showrunners began coming to him about working on scripts. Once Grantland shuttered, Greenwald made the jump from critic to creator. He hasn't looked back since. Greenwald has done a healthy amount of podcasting throughout his career. He co-hosts The Watch with Chris, he's the host of the sporadic Andy Greenwald podcast, and has appeared on plenty of the shows within the Ringer's podcasting network. But in each of these shows, the focus tends to be on entertainment. TV, films, punk records, the Philadelphia Eagles... Like many of those who routinely listen, as I do, 
Those shows are consistently a blast. Few people can engage with art in a way that is both intelligent and playful. Greenwald always seems to do that. However, I admit that when I asked Andy to do the show, I noted that this conversation that he was going to have on Talk Easy would be a little different than what he's used to. While I've spent hours listening to Andy, I had no idea about who he was as a human being in the world. I knew his opinions on the young Pope. There was no shortage of young Pope opinions, in fact. But what about his childhood? Or his college days with Chris? Or that time he wrote a novel about a despondent Brooklyn writer who discovers he has a doppelganger? Yes, that is real. There's a lot of ground to cover in Andy's varied career. I think we did a solid job surveying all that we could, and I, uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. So here, finally, is Annie Greenwald. So should I like yell your name in the beginning of this podcast? Like, I mean, I'm used, I'm used to it. I know you are. I don't I, think there's any reason to, but if you feel like it. Where did that come from? I have no idea. He's, he's, he's an excitable guy. He's very excitable, except it, I feel like it's never reciprocated as much. I feel like you need to be doing that to Chris every now and then. Well, I, that's why I started doing the Bransky thing at the end, to give him a little bit of, uh, little bit of heat thrown back at him. <laughs> but in general, no. I mean, that was always the thing. Also, he, for, you know, we started the podcast in, um, we were both in New York in January of 12, and then he moved to L.A. two months later. So the majority, the first few years of the podcast, he was in L.A., in the nice Grandland studio, and I was in my apartment in Brooklyn. So he was in a place that felt professional, and I think, yeah, it was like good audio quality, and I was in a dingy, well, my apartment wasn't dingy, but it felt a little dingy. Yeah. So I didn't feel like, I didn't have the same energy. The The back story of this partnership is that you two were born in the same hospital? No. I just made that up. I, just certainly, totally made, I made that up. It just seems like you guys are attached at the hip. Well, what's amazing about it is that we both um, we both grew up in Philadelphia. We both went to Quaker schools in Philadelphia. We are, I'm six months older. We're essentially the same age. Um, we knew people in common. Uh, his father was a film critic that I read every week for the, for the Philadelphia Inquirer. But we did not meet until college. Oh. Um, and then we became best friends then. Well, I, so let's back up because I, sure. wa- I wanted to say, um, I've heard you on, anytime you do another podcast, yeah. you do an interview, it is predominantly about who's going to win the Emmys and, and, and yes. television shows you should watch because you spend a lot of time watching TV. Um, or I give the impression that I spend a lot of time watching sure, TV. Sure, you give a good impression if it's just an impression. Yeah, you're here in my home. You see I own a TV. So that's... You, it's, the, kind of small i gotta be honest it's super small no i I thought it would be like a big tv no well because most of the stuff i get is like screeners they send it to you on uh you know through a link and have to watch on a crummy laptop screen or whatever because airplay is a lie and doesn't work and Mm -hmm. Uh, those links never you always end up waiting seven minutes for it to buffer and then it stops halfway through i I, I don't that's the best way to enjoy young pope yeah like four minute pauses I think that's what Jew Law, like why he signed up. Mm-hmm. He's like, people may not like it consistently, but if it stops and starts... He, he thinks they'll get it. He thinks they'll get it. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I mentioned that because is it frustrating to have your public perception be like the TV guy? And that is almost the only yeah. thing people seem to know about you. No, I can't believe I have a public perception. How, <laughs> how great. I mean, what a nice thing to have. It's, it's nice to be considered... Uh, an authority or at least a voice worth hearing on any topic. I mean, 
that and maybe that's the the frustrated freelancer in me talking who spent a lot of time saying things or writing things and I don't know how many people were paying attention so so no I think it's great and and also I I do care about TV I mean I, I care about storytelling I care about um, its place in the culture and how we respond to it and how we consume it and produce it so I'm I think it's fun you're fine with that yeah so far so good mm. but but your childhood. <laughs> Yes. What happened? What's going on? I watched television. You watched? It was that you were like? Were you like <laughs> Judd Apatow? Because you've heard those stories where Judd Apatow yeah. like the was, only thing I, I think he was on Simmons podcast. Yeah. He's like the only thing I did was watch TV nonstop. You were born in Philadelphia. That's the extent. Uh, well, I was of my born in Wilkes-Barre, PA. Wilkes-Barre, PA, which is Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, and then I moved to Philadelphia uh, when I was one. Okay. So essentially, yes. Uh, and was TV part of the equation early on, or were you just... Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how much my screen experience was monitored the way that we do now with children. Um, I mean, I, I remember watching TV. I remember watching... I remember being in my parents' bedroom watching the TV at the foot of their bed when uh, the news broke in that John Lennon had been killed. Oh. Um, and uh, that was sort of... An, that was an intense thing to learn about. How old were you? Uh, was, he, was he killed in 80? I, th- I so think I was so. three. Before my time. But uh, yeah, I, I, I was this. three. I think. Um, so I was watching TV then. Um, no, I mean, I, I mostly read. I was just an enormous reader. Mm. Um, but to your question about TV, like, it almost, in retrospect, it seems ridiculous that it took me until um, whatever year it was that I started writing about TV because I, I was that kid who, when I went to my grandparents' house, uh, would pick up the copy of TV Guide on the, bed, on the uh, side table and read it like a magazine. Like I, I cared about cheers and jeers. I, I paid attention to ratings and who was in the cast of shows when I was like 10. Why was that? I found, I think I found the minutia interesting. I, I, I definitely always was interested in how things got made and who made the things and knowing things like this, this is definitely inherited. My dad is a, um, as a PhD in English literature and like his party trick was that he would know the birth and death dates of poets and <laughs> things like he would just, which is not really I mean, he also knows poems, which is probably more valuable, but he would like factoids, you know? So Did I think... you see him dispense this information? Oh, at sure. Yeah. It's it slayed at parties. <laughs> People came over and they're <laughs> no. like, hey. Like Edmund Burke. Yeah. I need to know birth and death here. No, but like this idea of like knowing things as like the brain as a, um, you know, like a, a curated experience of right. information was, was definitely part of my childhood. But, but I also just appealed to me. Like I liked to know when you saw the names at the beginning of a TV show or movies, I'd like to know what those names were and what those names meant and what they did. Um, and where those people came from. Where they came from, where you could see them again. Did you have that about sports? Because that was my experience. I yeah. had like an, an encyclopedic knowledge of like NBA and MLB and I memorized statistics and all this stuff. I did. I was a sports... I had these two major eras of sports fandom. When I was really little, I was a big baseball fan because my dad's a big baseball so fan. So what age is that? Um, from learning about John Lennon's death to... Uh, uh, I think that's going to be the like a chronicle. That, yeah, that's a huge moment in my life. Um, from then until I'm trying to think, like I was a big baseball fan probably until I was like 10 or 11, hmm. and then I took a sports hiatus for like until probably until high school, and then I became as to to your point, like then I took that part of my brain. I used to joke that I must have run out of like actors' names to learn because <laughs> then I just I went all in on the NFL and, and NBA hmm. uh, and became. I mean, I, I had to step back from football fandom because it was it was it was a lot. It was too much. It was it was it was damaging my life. So it seems you you like things that would provide alternate universes. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I liked uh, you know I, I think this is a, a, 
it's not an atypical thing to become like very obsessive and collectory, yeah, um, and sort of define yourself. I feel like that. that's a guy so, thing. Yeah, I was. I just walked back from saying that because I feel like it is. You know, in general, like you know, when you show up, at, when I showed up at college and you meet people who might be your friends, it was like I'll show you my CD collection if you show me yours. Yeah. Um, it was very much thing oriented. I'm is sure that, there were women that like that too. Is that a dick measuring contest, or is it? A... Yeah, I think in a very uh, uh, sort of intellectualized, meta, <laughs> soft way. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I discovered new stuff. You know, especially in high school. Um, I think you and I maybe had a similar thing where we toggled back and forth between. I love film, but then I was also a devout NBA fan. Yeah, were you doing both in that? Um, yeah, I was definitely. Um, devouring the sports pages and the entertainment pages. I think that makes. Def, I think that's an anomaly, though. I mean, I didn't know many people like that. You kind of had to either pick one or the other. Definitely, my experience, I think, with a lot of cultural things was definitely um, uh, uh, segregated. You know, I think that one of the reasons Chris and I got along, Chris Ryan and I got along so well instantly when we met in '96, was because he was one of the few people I knew who cared about pavement as much as he cared about Biggie, as much as he cared about Allen Iverson. Like we were equally f- just inspired and obsessed with all of those things. Mm. And, you know, generally I had friends who were sports fans. You generally would get friends who were one out of the, of the three. Right. And then you sort of pick between them. I don't know why it's one or the other. Yeah. I mean, I, it definitely felt in general that, I mean, first of all, this was something that I actually cared about enough to, it was sort of the basis of the, the emo book I wrote was that like teenage lives are so defined by external forces. You know, you mm. look for something to latch onto to define yourself. And, you know, I, I do think things like um, uh, Free Darko and then, you know, into Grantland, like sort of made it public to be the kind of quote unquote cool or culturally interested sports fan, right. the alt sports fan or whatever you want to call it, that, that there wasn't really a represent, there, that really wasn't represented, I think, when I was in high school. It was really one thing or the other thing. It was sort of impossible to imagine bringing a, sort of a sideways viewpoint to sports. Um, and similarly, like the, some of my people were still my friends, like showed up loving indie rock and literally laughed when I said, no, I also like Wu-Tang Clan, like, <laughs> like Nas matters to me. Like it was just not, com- it was not comprehend, it was not incomprehensible to them. And I feel like those divisions, thankfully, have seemingly melted away. Not to date you here, but what year were you oh, in you, high school? You can date me. I graduated high school in 95. 95. Um, where was what was your like place in high school? Were you writing stuff? Like how did you? Um, was, was there like a social group you were part of? I'm just fascinated. Yeah, in no. Your I, experience I went there. to, like I said, I went to Quaker school in Philadelphia, just outside of Philadelphia, and uh, had a very, very, very small class. And I went to the school, the same school from kindergarten through graduating. So 13 years in the same place. So I knew the people pretty well, and I knew the lay of the land pretty well. Um, I would say that I, I mean, I did a lot of plays. Uh, you can you can <laughs> infer what you want from that. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I wrote. What do for you like want me the, to infer from that? I mean, the role in the firmament. Um, <laughs> I was not on the uh, lacrosse team. I was definitely in all the plays, and uh, but I was also I was in I did student government. I was student council president. Oh, yeah. And see, now the pieces of the puzzle are coming yeah, together. Yeah, it's a big here. piece. But bringing it all the way back, the best thing, the reason I wanted to be student council president is you ran the assemblies. And you could do things like play Wu Tang Clan or Channel Live or whatever as the people came into the, uh, um, the you know the auditorium. So was teenage Andy interested in power? No, that was my last brush with power. I really, I, I really uh, liked. 
I really liked my school. I liked high school. That was funny why I ended up writing about emo later and like kids who who didn't because I had a great time in high school. Right. I I, I was fascinated by the book because it came out in 2003. But yeah. before that, you go to college to Brown. Yeah. You get in. You major in English. So when do you meet Chris? Do you have like a an origin? An origin story, story? Yeah. I feel like I've said this before, but I'm happy to to share it. Um, there was uh, so I had my freshman year. Uh, I met a woman who a classmate at Brown, who was from Philadelphia, who had gone to um, Friends Select, which was the name of the downtown Quaker school. Um, and and uh, that summer, um, the summer between freshman and sophomore year, I worked at the Borders Books and Music in Rosemont, PA, um, which is sort of near um, Haverford College. For oh, I love that you have to, to clarify. It's Borders Books and Music. Well, it, that's what they called it then. They had a, they I had, thought it was just big, Borders. Well, it's Borders, but they sold books and CDs um, back then. I worked in the bookstore. I should have just said books. I had nothing to do with uh, the CD side, except sometimes I would buy them with my my discount. Um, anyway, so I was working there that summer, and uh, this young woman was coming in a lot and uh, talking to me. And, 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 and eventually, I guess because she, she wanted to hang out or talk to me more, she was just like, oh, I, I have a friend who likes those bands that you like. And I was like, oh, yeah? Because, you know, you don't you're like dogs sniffing each other you're like right. oh sure sure so then she walked in one day that summer with a uh, red-headed kid and i think we looked at each other's band t-shirts you know it's like oh arch is a loaf yeah you like apples and stereo okay yeah yeah and like we went to the villanova diner and had grilled cheese sandwiches and uh we became best friends by and the I, way it's not and, like and, this and, girl, I, this and girl I, liked you i think yeah i dated her for a year and a half after that but barely the lead there but chris uh chris sold the chris sealed the deal <laughs> i was like you bring me chris i'll date you no, 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 no. She was, she's, she's wonderful. It seemed like you were a little unconvinced before Chris was part of the equation. We definitely. Well, no, I think it just being having Chris as the the the, uh, the third point in the triangle gave us more opportunity to hang out. Did and Chris get to know like each her? other? No, they they had known each other for you know since first grade or whatever. Mm. So was it one of those friendships in college that like was like immediate and suddenly you spent a lot of time yes well so he wasn't at brown he was at emerson in boston Mm. um but it was immediate in that he immediately became uh one of my best friends he immediately became very close friends with all of my friends at college started dating one of my friends uh at at school and and you know so we would i would go up to boston to see concerts um he had red hair uh what's that he had red hair yeah he still does he does. He's a yeah, redheaded, redheaded half Jew, um, and uh, he would come down to Providence constantly, and we would spend a lot of time doing that drive from Philadelphia to uh, up together, and yeah. Mm, what were those drives like? Uh, a lot of curated mixtapes. Yeah, a lot of mixtapes, and he would always be like, "Hey, there's no traffic. This is going to go great," <laughs> and then you know, then you hit the patch after Trenton, um, and then he also is incredibly optimistic about Cinnabon and how it's really worth getting and he's going to feel great afterwards. This I heard, yes. Yeah. Uh, Cinnabon's I, one of those things that seems good, but then once you have it, you're like, oh, boy. I can vouch for that. What a mess. I can I can 100% vouch for that. Yeah. It seems like that dynamic was established pretty early. I don't think anything's changed, Andy. No, nothing's changed. I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing is that like we just would we do this stuff anyway. We talk about this stuff anyway. Um, you know, if we're not doing the show, we're texting each other. So, And, and then, you know, he... I went to New York after graduating um, and started working at Spin, and then he came down to like very few months later and started contributing to Spin.com where I was working, and and then and, and then immediately became very close with the whole crew of writers we had at Spin and was basically and started writing for the magazine. So, so this was in New York. 
Yeah, this is uh, in 99, 2000. So you, le- you leave college, you immediately get this job. Yeah, I interned at Spin um, mm. in uh, the summer of 98. And um, while I was interning, I, got, I started writing reviews for what was then called Spin Online because mm. Spin showing the same um, wisdom they would apply to all of their dealings with the internet uh, had a, quote, internet presence that was only for AOL subscribers. Oh. And uh, because of that, they couldn't, well, for many reasons, they didn't pay anyone to contribute. So some of like... interns would write reviews. So I, like, reviewed Arab Strap Records for them, you know, to be seen by fives of AOL subscribers. <laughs> but having that relationship paid off because then when I went back to school um, senior year, they they launched Spin.com, you know, just on time. And, uh March of 99 and I had the first review up on it. It was Blur's 13 and they that paid like 30 bucks. Yeah. So I was go- so and then uh in May of 99 I I went to New York actually to to pick up my girlfriend who's coming back from a different girlfriend than the one we mentioned um f- uh, from a semester abroad. Stopped by the spin office to pick up a copy of a CD advanced CD to review it was Moby's Play and my editor there was like, "Oh, we're looking for a um editorial assistant you should interview and i did and i and so i started working there two days after graduating was writing the plan in college did you think okay i'm gonna go find a job yeah i mean i i, I loved i loved writing well also i knew I, I didn't know i could do it well but i knew i could it didn't seem like that much work it seemed fun um and music was the primary passion of my life at that point and i knew i wasn't playing it um but the, the secret, the dirty secret, maybe it's not a secret about writing about music for a living, is it's the one thing you don't really have to know anything to do. You don't have to know about chord changes or how to tune a drum. Like, you really just know, you need to know how to use adjectives and have very strong opinions. Mm. But the other thing that Chris and I really bonded over in college was we were not just fans of music, we were huge fans of music writing. We were obsessed with the names in spin, particularly in a couple other places. And, you know, we had many, many, many plans to do our own zines and um you know do our own projects and we were always buying like enemies and melody makers and paying attention to stuff that way so working for spin was was the dream like that was I, I could not imagine anything cooler than that were you both equally ambitious at that age see i don't know if it was ambition like i don't to me just that doesn't seem like the highest ambition to have i didn't have any thought past that I just thought like there would be nothing cooler than being in New York and writing for Spin because then you could get all the records early and you could advocate for them and mm. make, make funny jokes and get to know Charles Aaron and Sia Michael and Simon Reynolds and all the people I was reading, you know, mm. obsessively. And that seemed certainly seemed like enough. And then part of doing this is that by this point you're starting to write your book. Um, that came out. in later. I mean, I'd been doing, um, I, you know, the right. I was just writing. I was just looking for any opportunity to write. So I was writing creatively. I was doing like playwriting in college. Um, when I got to Spin, I was assisting the non-music uh, editor, the features editor, this guy named Dave Moody, who f- who founded something in San Francisco called Might Magazine with Dave Eggers. Right. Um, so I was actually answering his phone that summer, right before uh, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius came out, and all these calls were happening. And I was like to my boss Dave, I was like, "What's what's going on?" And he was just like. Nothing. Somebody's writing a book about me. And so there are, so you remember the thing about heartbreaking work is that like Eggers put everyone's real name in, put their phone numbers in the back. Like there was very, you know, meta, like see behind the screen. 
but I don't think the friends were super into it. I imagine not. So yeah, so Eggers was calling like to make that mollify that a lot. I remember, but but in general, you know, I was writing for the website, but my opportunities to write for the magazine involved like my third week, Dave Moody coming by my desk being like, do you like video games? And I was like, I had a Genesis. And he's like, here, this is called Dreamcast. It's coming out. This is a Japanese one. Set it up at home, play it. And you're going to San Francisco to like cover the launch. So I became the <laughs> video game critic, you know, which is just sure. But any opportunity is opportunity. So like writing about my first byline was a story about a Dreamcast game called Soul Calibur. And the headline was Samurai Whoopass. Like, I'm very proud of that. You remember the specifics? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember looking at that being like, what a, what a first byline. What it's, an honor. It's amazing that, that the landscape has changed so much. Yeah. The sort of the idea that, you, that one stumbles into something like this is almost non-existent now. Well, also just print. I mean, he, I, I may have told this before into a microphone, but like, there are a number of things that I hold up from what has not been the longest career, hopefully yet, but of just having existed in a different era. Uh, one of them was like, you know, Blender sending me to Milan to interview my chemical romance for a cover story for like 48 hours. But the biggest one to me was, I think it was the December 99 issue um, of Spin. We were all working on it and there was this thing called closing, which is the week you would like, they would order dinner and you would stay late because you were actually making the physical magazine to send off. Mm. And I remember the publisher or the ad sales came up to our floor and they were like, we got to crash in more copy because we sold too many ads. The magazine actually had to get bigger. So they were like, okay. So they like ran a piece about, um, there was a, a show at the Brooklyn museum that Giuliani got really angry about. It was called, it was like a shock art show, you know? So we like ran a piece on that in spin. Perfect. Like what, what it's basically saying that I used to like um, sketch on the back of a dinosaur to get to, to get to school in the morning to yeah. say that like they, there, there was a time when there were so many ads for print that we needed Sorry, more content. Sorry, there's too much money here. We need, we need too to... much money. Why don't you cover an art show? Um, it was a different, a different time. Did you know that you were living in some sort of golden age at that point? No. I mean, because it seemed even then, I mean, maybe all magazines were like this, but even then I would say a hallmark of spin was that they never, it was the little magazine that couldn't. And didn't. That's what I always would say about it. Like, I love it dearly. I love the people there. But, you know, like, I, I joined a magazine that was just coming off of this totally unique supernova of a time when the artists that they editorially wanted to support could also be put on the cover. Mm. So they could put Kim Deal on the cover, PJ Harvey on the cover, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, whatever. You could put those bands on the cover, feel good about it, and sell magazines. I entered into an era when it's just like, okay, we're going to put Beck and Tori Amos on the cover my first summer there. But then they weren't quoting, they weren't like popular in the same way anymore. And so then I was there during the era when they were like, Papa Roach pink. Like what isn't cover artist for a music magazine? So it already felt like something was shifting. And then I, I was the, I was Dave Moody's assistant for six months. And then I took over the website at age 23, which is not a compliment to me. It's just more of an indictment of their, lack of foresight about anything. So You're quick to not compliment yourself. I've, I've noticed this. No, but this is really true. Okay. I was the director of new media for Vibe Spin Ventures at the age of 24, overseeing Vibe <laughs> Spin and Blaze Magazine's websites. We had our own staff. We had a video person. We did all this video stuff. We had like our favorite bands come in, play on our couch. Seems not were, ideal for it, a 24 it was, No, it was ideal for me. For you? No, like, no, yeah. sure, sure, so sure. I was like... I meant for the business. Yeah, it was like, large. like Death Cab, Spoon, whatever, like they were close to our age, like come in and they just played, no one signed anything. We had all this footage. No one at the magazine wanted anything to do with it. 
They did not understand any of it. I had to like beg and cajole to get into editorial meetings to try and coordinate the coverage. We were running our own reviews of stuff they were running. It was nonsensical. Mm. My favorite memory from that era was... Um, I like that you smiled during this whole explanation. Oh, God. It's, it's so... the best joke I'll ever have. I mean, best job I'll ever have. And I called it a joke, which is true. Um, <laughs> the Freudian slip. I remember my, my boss coming by once saying like, you know, we're, this is someone like... He's thinking about investing in what we're doing here. He's very interested in like the, the video stuff because we were doing video stuff when only college students had broadband, basically. So no one could watch the stuff we were doing. Hmm. So they're very interested in investing in the broadband. They're this kind of company, whatever, and talked about it. I showed him the stuff we were doing. And I was like, sorry, what was the company again? And the guy's like, Enron. So Enron almost bought spin.com or invested in it, which is just, you know, Italian chef fingers. <laughs> Perfect. So that, that was that era. Yeah. And then, and then in, uh, Two months after 9-11, or two months before 9-11. Like, so it was the summer of 2001. They fired everyone except me and moved me into a storage closet off the Vibe conference room. And that was when I was like, I should probably try to do something else. And that's yeah. when I started writing. That's when I, that's when I pitched and sold the first book. Uh, so post-spin days, you need to recollect. Well, I was still there. Um, right, no. But, but you, I you had were, no job. But I, you were already were, mapping out. Yeah, I was literally in a closet. Right. Um, not a joke. Like, I would walk out to get lunch, and the Vibe editors would cry out in, in shock because they didn't know someone was in that closet. <laughs> and that was my place of business. And, and so concurrently with that, I had started writing. St- I, I wrote the first piece on Dashboard Confessional for Spin and had been covering some of these. Because I was writing a lot for the magazine, so I was covering a lot of these bands. And I was like, I feel like there's something happening here that's worthy of investigation. So I, I pitched it, sold it and then quit the closet job mm. but stayed on the masthead as a senior contributing writer. And, and, and considering all this writing, I'm, I'm interested in um, like where you came from. Was yeah. A suburb of Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, yeah. Um, did you ever feel like you weren't... And that, I mean, that's not, maybe not a matter of being in touch, but like not the ideal candidate oh, yeah. to be writing about all these like Cause you, Punk bands? Yeah, well, like, you're yeah. wearing a nice shirt right now. It's, like, buttoned up. And I didn't used to have nice shirts. No, I... Were, was there... Did you go through a punk no, phase? No. 100% no. 100% no. So I is mean, that whole book I, 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 a lie? Not at all. First page or third page, I'm like, this was not my world. I, I was very, very, very upfront about it. I need to read this book. Always. What in, And I wrote about, it, like, well, what was my way into this? Now... So did you play the wallflower to, card? Is that well to go to go back? I remember very clearly, like one time in '97, going to visit Chris. Maybe it was during the summer, even between like when school wasn't in. Like, and uh, he used to work at Newbury Comics, the the record store in Boston. And so we, we would, I would meet him there or whatever. And uh, I remember going to his place, just raving about the new Bell and Sebastian EP, three six nine seconds of light. And he was just mm-hmm. like, "This is the truth." And he handed me "Nothing Feels Good" by the Promise Ring, and I was like pass hard hard pass and we sort of went in different directions for a while but he was very much involved and he played in a band his roommates were in a emo band so he was he had like get up kids staying on in his basement like this was this was more his story than it was mine and he's actually a character in the book i I quoted him quite a bit um so does your friendship drift apart for a while drift apart in the sense that like he was finishing school and living yeah i mean we would see each other we didn't have cell phones so it was not nearly as constant but that's like 97 98 Mm. um he was doing his thing but uh yeah like so i was so my way into this was young people i i wrote this was the first piece i wrote about dashboard for for spin in november of of november of a one 
And uh, I put this anecdote in the book too, but like I showed up, it was a show at CBGB's. And I remember walking up there and I'd been there many times before, um, you know, covering stuff. Cause I, I mean, I may have had button down shirts, but I was still quote unquote a rock critic. I mean, that was my job was to talk to bands and stuff. And instead of seeing the usual crowd out in front of CBGB's, what I saw was like Range Rovers um, from like Suffolk County from Long Island dropping off high school kids mm. wearing like Gamecocks hats, you know, and like pleated khakis. And I was like, I know you kids, like you're the enemy. Like even to me, like people who dress like this were the enemy. Like this was not who I was or who I wanted to talk to and certainly not who would be going to a punk show. And then you see these kids going to CBGBs and they're screaming their hearts out, you know. And I interviewed some of them afterwards and they were like, we really care about art. We care about writing in our journals. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? And suddenly, so what interested me was this democratization of a quote-unquote outcast teenage experience. The idea that suddenly everyone was identifying with outcasts and loners because maybe everyone does on some level internally. And what the internet and this third wave, fifth wave, whatever emo was doing was um, basically making the underground accessible to everyone. Because I remember, like in high school, when I like I heard about Pavement or whatever or Yola Tango or whatever band I was into at the time, there was this record store, Repo Records, right by Borders Books and Music. Um, you know, it was like at the grungy record store, and you would go there, and people would glare at you, like high fidelity style. But they had the imports, and they had the indies, and they had the posters up from Matador and Merge and these other labels, and it was a little bit of work. Now, this was not hard work for me to go from where I live to this part of the suburbs. But still, crossing that threshold was a thing. Um, just as it's even more of a thing, or it used to be if you were in somewhere in rural America, and like maybe your brother, older brother, older cousin, or uncle, or aunt, or sister gave you a, a Smith's record, you know, and was like, okay, here's your passport to something else. Um, and so I was noticing that this seemed to be, that that's sort of what was happening on a large national scale. Because emo had been a regional thing, and all of a sudden it was a national thing. So that was what interested me. So I basically tried to, I pitched the book as me being like, can that sort of connection that many of us used to feel with one record that seemed to speak just to us, like alone in our dark bedrooms, can that become a national movement? Can mm. that be a large scale thing? I think the answer was no. And ultimately the book was about social networks, even though they didn't exist yet. And how like, I, was, I wonder at the end of that book, if like reading about someone's actual feelings on what was then live journals and would now be, I don't know, whatever, would that take the place and ultimately be more powerful and take the place of uh, Chris Caraba's lyrics? And I think the answer to that is definitely yes. What was that record for you? Um, what was that record for me? Uh, in high, Like when? In high school? The one where you listen to it and you're like, ah, this is why music is the best thing ever. There's so many. Like, I wish you were asking 19-year-old me this because I would have like, like I coughed slightly and pulled out like a notebook where There's I had a, a list. Right, a, seriously, I would have a detailed list. I mean... Maybe it's easier if I ask, did your parents show you something? No. My father is a uh, classical music, like avant-garde classical music okay. obsessive. Like my childhood is a soundtrack by him either um, le playing really loudly m music that sounded like, like crickets being massacred or him trying to tune in. I didn't know where that sentence was going. <laughs> yeah, me either. I didn't know where the music was going. Or him trying to tune <laughs> in um, like KMOX, The Voice of St. Louis, because hmm. he's a St. Louis Cardinal fan. So just static. Um, my mom was like a big, uh, big Beatles fan, but also like 
Peter, Paul, and Mary and folk music and like John Denver and stuff like that. So, so what was your first discovery? The, for me, the big deal was the first record I ever bought was Thompson Twins Into the Gap mm. when I was six. And I'm proud this. of that. I don't know this record. Um, it's a very good synth pop record. So I was really into music very young because we had MTV when I was, we got MTV when I was like six or seven. I just watched it mm. uh, nonstop. But uh, by high school, the big one for me was R.E.M., I, be, I became obsessed, obsessed with R.E.M. with, with my, my best friend uh, in middle school. We both became obsessed with R.E.M. to the point where we made our mothers take us on a spring break trip to Athens, Georgia, just to like be where R.E.M. was. Not even a show. No, 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 no. Because they weren't touring then. So I... I became obsessed with them at, when Green was out, and I just missed them play Philadelphia, and then they did not tour again until Monster. So there was like five or six years they didn't tour. So I actually didn't see them until I was already in college, and like they had just been the gateway drug. And I mean, mm-hmm. I still loved them, but they wasn't the same thing. But um, but the thing is that you know the way things used to work then is if you like one thing, then you slowly you know you, you pick at it, and sometimes you. You, so you listen to R.E.M. and you're like, well, Scott Litt produced this. Scott Litt produced a record by The Replacements. What are The Replacements? Then you become obsessed with The Replacements. And then you see an interview where someone says, I like R.E.M., The Replacements, and Toad the Wet Sprocket. And I'm like, okay. And not every path you go down is the right one, but you start chasing it and you start chasing it. Um, this is the TV Guide stuff all over again. Yeah, no, it is. It, it, because I also read Spin and I read Rolling Stone and you know uh, whatever else I could get my hands on, especially the British press, so that... So that by the time I got to high school, it was it was it was hip hop and indie rock. It was um, guided by voices. It's a huge huge band for me, and and Super Chunk, and that I mentioned Archers of Loaf, stuff like that. And then and then also concurrently like Biggie, mm. Wu Tang. It's huge. I, I I remember going to I went with my friend to a Biggie show, and he played like Springfield, Pennsylvania. Which is just like there's a mall there. You went to a Biggie show? Yeah, and I was in line for a long time in front of it wearing like a ski I was wearing a cap and I was probably dressed like this and and everyone in the crowd called me Beastie Boy nah I'll give you a guess why cause you kinda look like Horvitz cause I'm white <laughs> that was, that's why spoiler alert Music stuff seems to come to a close. Around 2003, the book comes out, and then... Well, so basically from that point, for all that... Basically, for that decade, I am I'm freelancing. I'm writing cover stories for Spin and Blender. You're in writing, Brooklyn. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm, yeah, I'm in Brooklyn from '99 until August of last year, um, and uh, I'm writing for Entertainment Weekly and Washington Post, or basically wherever, wherever will pay me to write, um, and almost entirely about music because that was sort of the thing that I was n- known for. I had contacts, and that's what I could do. Hmm. I, after my after the emo book came out, I. I wrote a novel called Miss Misery and right. that's very, very music heavy to the point where I got some bands that I was friendly with to let me s- send a mix CD with the advanced copies of the book, which I'm very proud of still. I wish people could, I wish I could have come with the actual book, but like I got, um, 
think uh, Jenny Lewis and Rilo Kiley and um, Jim Atkins from Jimmy World and I forget who else was on there. But like I got them to agree to do this for the book. But by, the, he, by the way, the log line for this book yeah. I have here is it uh, a lonely Brooklyn 20-something yeah. David Gold has problems, blown work deadlines. I wrote this. An obsession line. with an internet temptress he's never yeah. met in the flesh. Yeah. And worst of all, a hedonistic double attempting to steal his identity. Yeah, well, yeah. This, it's a book about a doppelganger. It's about internet culture before internet culture was a thing. It was, it was fun. Um, it was a long time ago, but it was fun. But it was very soaked in music, and the it also seems slightly then. autobiographical. Oh, sure. Yeah. So what happened was when I was writing this book about um, emo, when I was writing "Nothing Feels Good," like because so much of the book was about the the, the kids. I mean, that's what they called themselves, like the scene kids, like people who are fans because the argument ultimately was that emo is a sort of a temporary moment that exists between fans and music. It's not really the bands. It's not the albums. It really is a fan driven thing. And so a lot of the research was me sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn, AOL instant messaging with like 16 year olds in Utah, which definitely is illegal or should be illegal. It should 1000% be illegal. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I was telling their stories and quoting them and using them in the book. And at the same time, I was also finding this new world of like on live journals that I was writing about where there were just these people who were not that much younger than me, but maybe three years younger than me. Because um, when I was writing that book, I was 25 and 26, I guess, who were just living a life that I didn't recognize in the city that I lived in. They were having these wild nights and like do, making these cross connections. And it seemed it was more intoxicating than reading fiction. And so I decided, so it came to me, I was on a train once and just this idea came to me of like, what if there was a sliding doors version of me? Like, what if there was a version of me that tipped into that world? What if I started trying to live that life? What if I, what if one of these young people I was instant messaging with just suddenly came to Brooklyn, like to, to meet me or like to, to flee her life? And like, what if all these things became tangible in weird ways? So in the book, the character is, you know, uh, more extreme situation than I was. I was never like that writer's blocked. I was never, um left so completely alone as that character is but starts writing a fake blog about all the things he wishes he was doing and then the blog starts updating itself because his hedonistic doppelganger <laughs> is running around new york city doing blow and you know djing parties and 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 actually trying to hook up with the blog girls that that i was reading so it, it one book led to the other directly but you prefer that version of you live on the page than in reality oh uh... There was 2004. There was 2003 and four, but it was a long time ago. What were those years like? Um, fun. Different from other years. Different, very different from other years. Yeah, <laughs> they were they were fun. They were they were a lot more um, social. <laughs> uh, and then in 2006, we'll bypass those years because sure. Though it is, you can ask Chris about those years. Um, Chris will come on next week, <laughs> okay. and we'll have him after, and we'll interrogate okay. and see. Yeah, ask him about ask him about playing like like FIFA '04 at uh, at dawn. I'm feeling that's not exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> no, that's it's very connected. But but yeah, so he was living in the city then. Oh yeah, yeah. Chris moved to Brooklyn in '99. So you guys were finally in the same city. Oh we, yeah, we, and we were from '99 till 2012, and he was we had all the same friends. Like was as it, soon as he met all the people from Spin, they were his friends too. Was that a disaster or great? Oh, it was great. Oh, it was, it was great. He lived, uh, for a little while, we lived in the same neighborhood, and then we lived very close. I, I was in Park Slope. He was in Carroll Gardens. I, it's interesting that you had, so you said it was 2004 and 2005. 2003, 2004. Three, four, five, yeah. So those years of 
whatever you want to call them. I don't know what's the right free term. play. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a gender. That's nice. Sure. That's nice. They lead into what you describe here that I found only through the way back time machine oh, yeah, yeah. online. Yeah. You wrote on your blog. It said um, 2000. Those words already are. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a blog spot. I don't know what it was. No, well, I had. Um, it was andygreenwald.com. Yeah, I had a something. website for the books, and on that sure. I would write little updates. So, so this is December, uh, I think, 12th of 2006. You say. Oh, this is journalism. Yeah. Changes abound all over the place, actually. For one, I'm no longer living in Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, I am, just not for a year. Fate and a really wonderful one-year job for my girlfriend has taken me rather different environments yes. of Boise, Idaho. It's true. Um, you also described... I lived in Idaho for a year. Yeah. Well, I, before leading to that, you, you apologized for not keeping the site active. Yes. And in part because I'm sorry if I'm hiding in yeah. the wake of... Uh, Bush's re-election. Yeah, that was a, that was a tough one. Which I found interesting rereading this morning. Yeah, uh, I, given, I re- given things happening now, I remember very very well. I mean, I, people who weren't politically active then, I think, don't understand like how surprised we all were that that happened. And uh, obviously, it was nothing like the surprise and devastation that's happened just in the last few weeks and months. But at the time, it was truly shocking and took the wind out of our sails. And I just remember going with my that same girlfriend who got the job, the same person who's my wife now, we went out to breakfast and I brought a notebook to make a list of things to, to be happy about. <laughs> and it was a rough breakfast. Um, you guys made it together? The list? Yeah. Yeah, we tried to make the list together. And how did that go? I, I don't remember. It, it, was, it felt forced. There yeah. was not much that felt that Did happy you remember anything you wrote on the list? No. I, honestly, I don't. <laughs> I don't. You remember the creation being rough, though? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was tough. So where did you meet? Uh, in college. You met in college. Yeah. And then she moves to New York. And yeah. You, and you re meet. No, we were together. Uh, she she was younger. We met. Um, she was so she was still at college for a year when I wasn't. And then we were together in New York. And then we weren't for a short time. And then we were. Yeah. What I the reason I bring this up is this for a specific reason. Yeah. Is that, um, you leave the East Coast for the first time. Yeah. And you're how old there? Um, 28. Right. Yeah. You were pretty entrenched in that world. I mean, sure. You've written books. You're... My whole life was the Amtrak Northeast Corridor. Yeah. And you left it. Yeah, it sucked. God, it was awful. It was real bad. I mean, you know, we... By the way, the description on the blog is, um, we have a yard now and it's super nice and I Oof. feel peaceful and it's... Yeah, that was probably like the month we got there when it was a fun change. Like basically, the, it was there was a hangover period from mm-hmm. like from other other from a certain from a certain period in my life. And like, not I'm making it sound very dramatic. It wasn't as dramatic as I'm making it sound, but it felt really good to be back in uh, this relationship and also to be away just for a minute. Oh, so did that happen at the same time? Is that you guys got back together and then was well, yeah? It was she had this job, yeah. right? Yeah, so I went with her. Um, but it's also, I mean. I think the weight behind it is like you're getting in that age, the 28 age where you're like, okay, well, you'd think, yeah, it would seem right. <laughs> it seemed right. And but, also to move, I, I, I'm just fascinated and you moved your life. Yeah. Well, not really. So we kept our apartment. Sure. It was a temporary. We sublet move. our apartment to the same friend who I went to Athens, Georgia with, mm. uh, just to give you some uh, story continuity. And my heart never moved. I mean, like the one thing that was fun about it for a few weeks was, or maybe a couple months was 
you know, novelty. And then also, um, people don't realize this, but Boise is essentially West Coast. So, and she was working for the federal court, which was in San Francisco. So I got to visit friends in Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and LA a lot. And then in February of 06 or January, no, in December to January, my novel came out. And so I went on a book tour and was away on this book tour around the country and kept going, you know, back east. I was writing for Spin, so I'd go to Chicago to do a um, Fallout Boy story or whatever. And then I really refused to admit that I was not in New York. And so the hardest part of that year was when the book tour ended and then I had nothing else to do. So like March, March until we left in August was just brutal. Mm-hmm. I was not a nice place, good place for me to be. How did you manage? Well, I was still writing. So I was freelancing for places and, 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 and writing record reviews and stuff. Did she? And, I mean, I imagine you were pretty vocal about your disdain. Yeah, well, we both ultimately didn't like it. I mean, the job was amazing. It was a federal clerkship, so it was worth doing. But especially at that age, uh, in the, that moment, Boise is not a very welcoming town. Um, anyone our age that we could encounter who was sort of simpatico either had left to live in Portland or San Francisco or was back in Boise to have kids. Um, mm. And we were not doing that. So... And literally no one was friendly to us. Like, it was not a friendly place. Really? Yeah. To you? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's not a... It just seems... Here's my theory. Uh, yeah. That, you know, I, I, every once in a while in these podcasts, I throw out theories about the guests that are... Sure. ...completely unsubstantiated until you respond. Yeah. It seems like it, it's hard to be unkind to you. That's very nice. I, many people have been quite good at it. Yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> Um, I also was not in a, I was not like, a, a, like how, like this met a lot of people or no, like? I, you'll have to ask them. Um, I, I was not, uh, I was not in a, um, outward reaching frame of mind. I would say either. I was eager to get back and uh-huh. was so happy. And both of us felt that when we, when we moved back that we would never leave New York again. Uh huh. And so what happens when you get back? Do you, you get right back in the swing of I it? I had a book contract to write a, another novel, um, and then that novel took on, I kept changing it. I couldn't find a story I wanted to tell, so I was just getting lost in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and How many years was that? Two years. Um, you know, and I'm still freelance, so I'm, I was still writing things for magazines. I think that was when I wrote a Vampire Weekend cover story in there, and the, the, the time I went to Milan um, for, for my chemical romance, but... The, the next sort of thing of note in there was that I, I got hired by uh, an old friend and, and boss. It's been Craig Marks to help him um, launch a music website for CBS Interactive, CNET, in 08. And at that same time, uh, Josh Schwartz, who's the guy who created the OC, I had become friendly with him because I had written a feature on him for GQ that got killed ultimately. It was like this really long, tortured process where I spent time with him right as he was putting together the second season of the OC, and then it didn't it wasn't received that well so they sent me back to write more of the story and anyway it was ended up being great because the story was killed but he and i became good friends the piece didn't wasn't received well uh no the season of the second season wasn't the same story anymore to write Uh. and then ultimately the editor-in-chief of the or someone at gq was just like do we like this guy or we don't like this guy and i was like aha but they killed it um but it was good i mean i don't think i've ever gotten paid more for a piece since the conde nest and they never ran it but uh, I made this friendship because um, he's just a year older than me and we were in very similar places in our life. And in 08, he was launching, he, he got, he had a deal at more, at, his overall deal was at Warner Brothers and they were trying to launch the WB as a internet channel. Mm. So they had him create a TV show called Rockville. that was basically a web series set in a rock club that music bands would perform on. And so he asked me to write an episode of it and I did. 
and then it was great. It was a great experience. It was so fun. And then they asked me to write a second one. And the second one was the penultimate episode. And in that one, I had to like line up things because the first one was just on spec, like write something in this world. Right. The second one was more like TV writing, like these things have to happen. And that was even more fun. And so after I had so much fun doing that, that I then turned the book that I was writing, which at that point was almost like a YA novel into a spec script because I decided I wanted to, to, to go into TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was fall of 08 where um, it's like three things. I had this job and we were trying to get the site launched. Uh, uh, we were hoping Barack Obama would be president and the Phillies were in the World Series. And I was like, two out of three. I'll take two out of three. And I got the ones that mattered most. I got the Phillies, I got Obama, and uh, they pulled the plug on the site without launching it. Um, you placed the Phillies over the... Uh, the job? Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Any 10 times out of 10. So that was that was fine. That was good. Um, and then I... But so, yeah, so I had this spec script, and I got uh, an agent from that, and I was hoping to, to do what I'm doing now. I was hoping to write for TV, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't ready to move, which made things complicated. And, and the only thing people thought of me was I was the music guy. There was music in the script. I had written about music, so I would, like, that's all the meetings I would have. But I had these sort of fitful things where, like, I got hired by Cartoon Network to work with this older producer and create this cartoon about a garage band and did that, wrote the script, got paid, didn't get made. E- nothing got made. Everything would vanish. And at some point in there, Nick Catucci, in his infinite wisdom, who was then at Vulture, was just like, have you ever considered doing these recap things? And I was like, no. And he asked me to recap um, Friday Night Lights, which I loved. And it was just like the most fun thing ever. It was, the e- it was just like, why am I such an idiot? Why, would I, why did it never occur to me that... Because the thing about music, you asked if it had faded. I still love music, but like writing about music is a young person's game because it's tribal. You got to have to really say, I feel like not just this matters but this matters instead of that it's very oppositional often plus it wasn't an industry anymore plus streaming and and mp3s like you didn't need record reviews because you could hear it for yourself that didn't used to be the case Mm. and the budgets were slashed and publishing was dying and blah 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 but so i recapped friday night lights for vulture and then i recapped like uh party down and rubicon and and that was just really fun um but i was still doing music stuff and i was still trying to do this screenwriting and, um, and then Grantland happened. Yeah, and I knew about Grantland for, from the very beginning because uh, from Chuck, Chuck Klosterman, and from Chris, who was in from the very, very beginning. I remember in, it was probably February of 11, I went to the Brooklyn Inn to get beers with Chuck, and he was like, you know, this thing with Simmons is really happening. Like, if you, if you want to get in on it, you, you could probably pitch anything. And I was like, no thanks. I'm good. I was such a dick. I was like, freelancing is, I'm done with it. I'm done with criticism. Like, it's a dying thing. I got to get out of it. And uh, what did he say to that? He's like, okay, he sounds like you're enjoying doing what you're doing. And then in April, uh, Lane Brown, who I'd known from Spin and then was one of the founding editors of, of Vulture and had been my editor of Vulture, and then he was the founding culture editor of Grantland. He was in LA, he'd moved out to start the site. The site was launching in a few months, and he called me out of the blue and he was like, I finally convinced everyone that we need someone writing about culture part time when we launch, and would you want it? And again, I was like, I don't know. I was like, Andy. No, I know, but I, my response, which was accurate, was like, part-time jobs on the internet get smeary. Like, you know, there's no such thing as part-time. Because you end up doing more work. You just end up doing, it's constant. And I sort of knew that, but it, I was like, well, I could work with my friends, and it seems like kind of a cool thing. But I had no contact with Bill. I had no contact with the mothership. I just, you know, I agreed to terms on this part-term thing, and... I, I wrote a piece, Lane had an idea about HBO, and it was the HBO recycling program that, like, they always use the same actors. 
So I wrote a piece on a Tuesday, filed it. He's like, great. The next day, the site launched, and it was up there the first day with this beautiful illustration by this guy. I actually bought another one of his pieces, this, this thing right here in my dining room. Um, this guy, Craig Robinson, who lives in Mexico City. But um, and all of a sudden, that's what it was. And I, I had no idea that it was going to be big or good. Um, I wrote every day that summer about all culture, and it was so fun. It was so fun for so many reasons, but the biggest reason being like I had like rescue dog mentality from being a freelance person. Like you just assume no one wants to read what you're doing. You just I was writing record reviews for Entertainment Weekly that were four sentences. Like that that that's that's what the word count was. You know, right. that's 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 math. That's not writing. And that's when um writing becomes paycheck. Yeah, which it was. Um and all of a sudden, not only did I have some new topics to write about, but I had an audience because the thing about Bill that is just amazing is he was generous with the most valuable thing he had, his audience. So all of a sudden you're being read. And then through that summer, I was writing about everything and writing more and more about TV. Um, it sort of took over the TV beat unofficially that fall in September and then came out here for the first time uh, in December or January, mm. I think, and, and met Bill. And he was like, we're, we're going to take care of you. And so they ripped up my part-time deal and I was full-time starting. What is that, that interaction like when you come here to LA Yeah, and, and you said you had that rescue dog thing Yeah, and you're like, I mean, we both live here now. We're both recently yeah, yeah. moved here. It's a beautiful place. It is. It's, it's, it's a little disturbingly beautiful at first. Yes. And, and it's disarming. When you go to that meeting, like what, what is that? Well, I, I mean, I, the LA part, like I, I loved coming here. I was coming here as much as possible for work, like always doing stories out here. But yeah, going into the office, meeting a lot of these people I'd never met before, and just hearing things that you just had never heard in journalism in 10 years, just like blue skying it, like we're going to do this, we're going to hire this person, and we're going to be able to accomplish this, and we're going to be able to pay you this. And like, oh my God, like this is, this was all supposed to be dead. I had no idea this was even mm -hmm. possible. And then, yeah, I mean, I was a huge Bill Simmons fan. Like Chris and I would, I remember we would, you know, like everyone, we would email each other columns from the minute they started running, being like, this guy likes The Wire too and sports? Like, holy shit. And then we actually meet him, and he, he's the same guy you read. But, you know, he is outrageously, fiercely loyal. And, you know, I think he appreciated how hard I was working and stuff. And he, he does take care of people. It was remarkably generous. Um, so it was surreal, but it was really intoxicating. It was really exciting. I don't remember if that was the first time or the second time, because then I... January of 12, I remember being out here for the first Grandland holiday party. It was after the holidays. And, like, we went to a Clippers game and sat in a box and, like, got to shoot free throws. I was like, okay. And then Chris was already, they were like, Chris has to move here. And they were trying to get me from that point on. But I resisted. The whole time, I resisted. You go into that Clippers game, you know this utopia can't last forever. Yeah, well, no, it felt like it could. I mean, like, in terms of <laughs> Grandland, sure. It, it, at, a certain point, it, at a certain point, you were so far wily coyoteing off the cliff that it was like, well, why would it stop now? Uh, at what point did you see the turn? Um, when they fired Bill. <laughs> I mean, I, I still think, you know, that, that I'm not, I mean, getting into that, we can get into that if you want, but, like, it was an amazing, amazing, maybe not recreatable collection of... of disparate, diverse, unique talent. And, um, you know, that's a resource, but it's a resource that the company never cared much about, mm -hmm. maybe with good reason, because it's not, you know, if you're used to brokering NFL deals, this is not the same thing at all. Maybe it's not as valuable. And um, 
I, I did still think that it would hold together through the first part of the spring and summer. And then when it became clear that it wouldn't, I, the timing was good. My contract ended a week after they ended the site. And so I was already leaving. Right. Um, it's all those little elements that add to the mythologizing yeah. of the site. I mean, and, 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 and I don't use that word lightly. I think it has on the internet been, um, there's something mythical about Grantland. It's funny. It's, it's nice. It's like the last vestige of an old system. I, I can't believe I got to be a part of it. it. I feel really, really fortunate because of the people I got to work with and the opportunities I had were just outrageous. Outrageous, you know, to, to, to be able to just, to be able to, the, um, I mean, you said at the beginning, like to, to be quote unquote an authority on TV or talk about it, like to be able to have someone give you that podium the podium just built for me to grab the microphone i mean it's crazy but you knew it was time to go um well at that point i was not liking i mean i i don't think anyone liked working for espn except for the fact that espn pays really well and you know you could have a corporate card and you could fly to la or do these big picture things i mean i, I don't mean to sound ungrateful in any way i mean they look what they let me do that's insane mm. look at the studios they built us you know, that's crazy. So I think we're grateful for that. But in terms of working for that company, I think that we all really liked the idea of what Bill was building, which was sort of a shadow company inside the company that could maybe be a little more nimble and creative. But those things don't really tend to work out. I mean, their motherships are motherships for a reason. So I saw that coming. And then also, I really wanted to try something else. I think I, I wrote a lot. And I wrote really long pieces. And, you know, to some degree, the thing that you hear is, is true that you always are the person you walk into a job on the first day, you always are that person until the day you leave. And I walked in as a part-time grinder who was just going to write about culture. And though I was given many opportunities and, you know, given a podcast and more of a column, I was still the guy who wrote two or three times a week. Right. And there were other people who didn't, and that's great. But, I, and I was envious of that. And at a certain point I kind of was extremely envious of that. I wanted to calm down and breathe and not have to write everything and watch everything. Do you remember when in that format, because you were writing a lot. Yeah. But you'd write long things. Yeah. When you felt like you were hitting your stride. Because it was it was kind of a clear thing for me as a reader. Yeah, that's interesting. When that happened. It was... Um, yeah, I'd love to know what you think. At the end of Louis season... F it may have been... the, the Oh, the, the internet has a Louis problem? Not the other way around? I think piece? so. I think it's about Louis and, and the, the aggression, really aggressive relationship he had with the woman. That was the piece I was like. That's really nice of you. That piece is one of the probably the two that I'm most proud of. Really? That's the piece, yeah. Oh, well, see, I, I picked up on something. For then. sure. There are a couple that, that are I Are you did. surprised that I got that? No, only because I was hoping you'd say I guess if I think about it, yes, I am. But I, I'm very grateful because that's one of the pieces I was most proud of. It's incredible. That, I, remember, I remember talking about it with like a bunch of people being like, Man, like we're never gonna write something this good. Oh, that's nice. I, that felt like the moment where you could use, you could clear out some space to say something that hopefully was a little bit different than what everyone else was saying. Because the other thing that started to get exhausting was the the hot take industry, the culture industry online. It's like, you know, I'd I'd like to think I'd li I brought I'd like to think that I brought a certain level of rigor to everything I wrote. I wanted it to be unique or interesting or well written or have jokes or whatever. But no matter what I poured into it, you're still shoveling cultural snow and everyone's shoveling snow. And it started to feel like, what was I contributing other than to this, you know, flaming tire fire of opinion? And Except I think peop a lot of people were, to stick with this analogy, they yeah. had like 
little brooms or they had little like snow things, but you had like a snow blower. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. I, well, think, I think that's what, well, rather that's what the writing read like. I, 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 want, I took the writing part more seriously than the opinion part, maybe to my detriment. Like I really wanted it to be well-written or just very written because they were long pieces. You know, my editors probably didn't like that. But yeah, I mean, I, so there were moments like when I, when, when the Louis thing happens and you have a little bit of lane to write something that's a little bit different. Um, that you're passionate about that maybe hopefully can say something bigger. And the, the thesis of that piece wasn't like this season of Louis was good. It's that art should be challenging. And we're entering an age in the internet where we're offended by everything instead of wondering, instead of being letting it affect us and being confused by that and sitting with it, which is sort of an anti-internet argument, really, if you think about it. Um, so that piece, um, I'm really proud of the writing I did on Mad Men like two or three times a year. Breaking Bad was kind of a big one. Breaking Bad and Thrones, as they built, having that week-to-week relationship was like nothing else, hmm. especially the last six episodes of, or mini-season of Breaking Bad when maybe it's the last time in the culture when everything stopped and everyone, it felt like everyone was watching that show. And then to be able, and then I wasn't getting screeners after the first one. So to see Ozymandias and then sit down at 11 p.m. in the East and have to write something was I mean, I, I don't ever want to do that again. Well, what's important to note, is, I, I but, think, is that in these moments where the shows were dominating, yeah, everyone was watching Breaking Bad, everyone yeah, was watching yeah. Game of Thrones, two shows, ironically, I've not watched. Interesting. But that, that was me. Well, they're out there for you. They're out there for me. Your audience was growing, rather. It, it became like, yeah. it seemed like that was the first time you were having a, a clear yes. audience that was interested in Andy Greenwald at large. Yeah, and, and it, it's to the great credit of everyone at Grantland is that we never knew. They never, ever, ever said a word to us about traffic. I'm not exaggerating. Never. I never knew if something I wrote was, I think, no, okay, so the very end, like in 2015, I remember an editor being like, Are you, you sure you want to write another another column about the Americans? Like, have you, you know, so I, that was like the first sign that like maybe those that weren't as well received. But um, but in general, it was just wide open, and I was allowed to do it. So, but that feeling of like, oh, people wait for these and they want to read them. There is, I mean, I I can't express how appreciative I was for that because what a what a responsibility, like what an honor that people would want to know what you think about something, and that they're watching with you. So week to week, the experience that you're having to try to pull in strands from the episode and the culture and trying to spit out literally overnight something worth investing and worth reading that was really fun but it was very exhausting was there also a part of you that was thinking as much as i love this it this is not the thing you want to do yeah well that's the thing i mean was that was that like nerve-wracking to be like oh man people really love me for this thing yes and in my heart i know this is not what i want Yes. Forever, maybe not even in the next five years. Hugely. I, I worry, I'm sure many people worry, that it's dangerous to look past the thing, the current thing. Like, I really needed to try to be present and be appreciative that, like, I'm, I have something that I'm pretty good at that people like, and how lucky is that? Like, that's rare, you know? Um, but this is a recurring theme in everything you've told me, is that you, you, you do something, you become obsessive, you get very good at it, you reach some sort of climax and or a company decides to shutter on its own accord and you have no control over it yeah and then you move on to the next well you don't yeah well i don't repeat like i feel like you know it's like except uh your wife 
That's a great point. Yes. Well, that that was that one was worth it. Seems, the rest seems of them seems to be the most important. Repeat. That one was worth it. The rest of them, it's like once you climb a mountain, you're like, fuck, I'm not doing that again. Um, <laughs> How did you manage that in love? Uh, persistence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in 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 terms of what you're saying, like I wanted to be, I always wanted to be be more creative. I tried to be creative in the criticism, um, and. But that was an itch that wasn't scratched, you know, and it, to go, so it, to track it, you know, I was, I had an agent, I was trying to write for TV. Um, as soon as Grantland took off, I couldn't do both. I had to stop. So I shut right. down that part of it. I did not pursue it. I did not bring it up. I did not pitch. I did not write anything. This initial, the original spec script I had written was bought and it was going to become a, and it, they paid me to turn it into a web series and we were casting and uh, right sort of concurrently when I was about to get my first full-time gig and then like everything else I'd done it vanished overnight and I was like this is a sign you know I need to do the thing that's working right now I'm not going to do that anymore um, but it was remarkable because all of a sudden during the run of Grandland, I had access to everyone that I had hoped to have access to right to be in the room with you know and then they knew me or they were reading me and I could have conversations with them and uh, were you being careful in managing those relationships I tried to be yeah, it's it's very tricky because it's very seductive to meet people you admire, you know, or or for creative people you admire to flatter you and be like, I read you, I you know. I almost asked that as a selfish question because people have come on the show, yeah, and um, you know, we talk for an hour in a way that I think feels, you know, I don't know if we're gonna become pals after this, but it's certainly like, yeah, in some way or another, we're gonna be part of it. I'm gonna we have you know email. It's hard to. It's hard to like. It's not like a radio spot. No, that's. I mean, that's also one of the reasons why I love doing podcasts. Right. Which, I is, could, I, I which could, is why when I heard on your show, I would hear those relationships being fostered. I'm like, oh, how I wonder. Like which ones? I'm curious. Um, I I think uh, Manzukis for sure. Oh, well, that was amazing. Yeah, that was just ridiculous. That I thought you meant like when I did like when I would do solo my solo shows, my interview shows, like relationships with those people. Yeah, well, the one with... Um, when Menzoukas came up to us and was like, I listened to you guys, we were like, we're done. Yeah. We're ready to retire. I, I knew that. that. I a, knew that was a... That guy's a prince. Oh, my God. Well, which ones do you remember that, that immediately felt like that? Um, you know... The one with the guy from... I uh, See, I'm terrible at TV, yeah. but the, um, the robot... Well, Sam, yeah. So Sam is someone that I, I have become close with and I have a relationship with now. But that was solely because he read my stuff, came on the show, we get along. And then also, you know, he is just bizarre, bizarrely tuned about criticism. Like he, I hosted his after show because he wanted me to do it. I then went on The Watch with Chris and talked about all the problems with season two. He listens to every episode of The Watch. Yeah. Totally fine with it. Eager to come on and rebut them. You know, mm. I could never be like that. No. I'm much more sensitive. But so he's he's unique. But the fact that like I could use this podcast as a Trojan horse to be in the room with people that means so much to me, like Lindsay Buckingham, like like Tony Bourdain, you know, uh, like like Elizabeth Moss, um, David Chase. Like, I mean, I, I I can't believe I got away with it. Yeah. Um, I thought the one with I uh, didn't want Aya Cash. Oh, and she's yeah. So now I feel so in that one, like I feel like I'm friendly with her now because we became friendly. And like Stephen Falk, who run the, ran you the worst, who runs you the worst. Like there are cases where I do feel I'm friendly with those people now, and I'm glad I do not have to review their projects. Mm -hmm. But there are other things where, like early on, the show that I feel like sort of set me on the path to being the official critic was I. I was one of the early adopters of Homeland in fall of '11. Certainly not the only one, but one of the early ones being like, this thing on Showtime's good. This season's good. 
So that was a wave I got on early and then rode through the end and Showtime appreciated that. They knew I was championing it. They were reading my stuff. So I got interviews with Claire Danes and Damian Lewis. And then we did our first, what became more of a thing that I did regularly, but the first postseason, um, you know, uh, postmortem with Alex Gonza, the showrunner. And he's a wonderful guy, really kind and nice guy and came back on for the second season. And I saw him at a premiere party, you know, and, and then I had to keep writing about the show and I had to be honest because at a certain point I was like, the only th- people that I owe anything to are the readers. Like I, I only have X amount of credibility and I cannot burn it. Um, so I was honest and I always tried to be fair. And I hope that everything that I wrote, you know, obviously there were some reviews that were very negative, but I wrote TV reviews the same way I wrote music reviews, which is I fucking love it. I love storytelling. I want it to be good. I I wanted to acknowledge also the business part of it, that like TV is by definition uh, an imperfection machine. You can never get it right. You just have another chance to do it next week. It's collaborative. It's messy. It's stupid. It's ridiculous, you know? And now that I work in it, totally confirmed, all of that. (laughs) But I admire it even more. But he, you know, to which I understand, took it, took it badly. You know, I don't have any relationship with him. I don't have any relationship with that show. I wanted to, before Grantland ended, do a big, big piece on Homeland and sort of, I ended up writing the piece, but it was going to be a reported piece, basically being like, maybe we were all a little bit wrong. Like maybe I created this by being so wildly enthusiastic because of the internet. Mm -hmm. Maybe they made mistakes they made in making the show because the internet claims everything is the greatest when maybe the, maybe you should just be a B, B plus is okay. (laughs) You don't need to be A plus but he didn't want to participate. What was the angriest response you got from a creator or someone in a show? Oh God. Um, I know there's an answer to this. I mean, my favorite angry response was, but not even angry. It was sort of angry with like hate love, like the opening of season two of the leftovers where there's a cave woman and like a snake was created to piss me off. Like (laughs) that's not a joke. Like Damon, Lindelof did said in interviews that, you know, and then he, he wrote me later and that, we, you know, we, we worked it out on the podcast when he came on, but he listened to the Hollywood prospectus. He read all my reviews and he agreed with me and then leftovers came out and I was like, I can't, I can't get into it. And I was, you know, had all these problems with it. And he said that in the room, they were like, what will piss Greenwald off? Let's do the thing that will piss him off the most. And I know they did something else again for the season, even though I like the show. So that's my favorite response. Um, How does it make you feel? so stupid that's so dumb that they did that but i'm so honored in a way because you know the relationship with leftovers is it made me feel something even when that thing was anger or fear it was not a bad show it was just calibrated in a way that i didn't make sense to me and then they fixed the calibration and i think that's even more impressive Mm. but angry there are definitely people who hate me but i don't maybe i've maybe i've let them that memory fade Um, it's probably a good thing to let fade i've thought about roger ebert's career a lot in that um, many people went to him for film reviews as the guy yeah. for film reviews. In your own right, you've become, or you rather, you did become the guy for TV reviews. Uh, I would, I would. One of the guys. Emily Nussbaum, Alan you, Steppenwall, Matt, Matt Seitz, Seitz, all those people. Jim Ponowozik, yeah. And um, those guys are all still in the trenches and killing it. They the are all in the I, trenches. I, I, I jumped. I bailed. You bailed. But I, 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 the last question I want to ask about the TV stuff is that why do you think people liked you? Uh, assuming they did, um, some, a lot of people didn't. Let's operate under the assumption okay. they did, or at least were fascinated. Uh, here's what I hope. I hope that people thought that what I wrote came from a place of being informed, but also being enthusiastic. 
I wanted it to be fun. I wanted to have fun with it. But I also, within that, I wanted to take the work seriously and be empathetic towards the work of creation because it's fucking hard. And um, doing anything is worthy of some respect. Hmm. But then it's also worthy of, if it's worthy of respect, it's worthy of being interrogated a little bit and pushed back on. And, you know, I, I, there was a weird moment when it did feel, not to overstate the role of critics, because I think they're, they have a very important role, but I also think it, no one wants to overstate it more than critics. Hmm. It did feel like television wasn't top down. It was all part of one conversation that the fans could communicate more directly now. The critics could communicate more directly now. The creators could. And so we were all talking to each other in a way that felt not unhealthy i think maybe it's tipped in different directions since then but you know it 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 really felt amazing and i'm very grateful to have a seat at whatever table i was at because i could talk to these creators about their decision making hopefully hopefully have helped them think about things in a different way and then similarly to help the audience think about things in a different way because it's fun to do stuff together you like consensus I like consensus that we're all watching something together. Mm. And then the conversations and the debate can sort of... I love the way the internet... The internet's ruined most things. But I do think it Is that saved, a blanket statement? Yeah. Happily, I'll say it. You've been there from the beginning, so I'm going to give you authority it's, here. It fucking sucks, man. But I, of, of the many things that it has ruined, it had definitely saved and transformed television because it, it changed shows from a once-a-week thing to a 24-7 thing. You know, the, I, I, the analogy I used to use was like, the internet and the conversation that exists on the internet is we carry the show. The TV show airs on Sunday and we carry the show on our shoulders from Monday to Saturday. Mm. And we, we, we talk about it. We interrogate it. We think about it. We laugh over it. We obsess over it, make memes, rip it, whatever. Then the show comes back and we do it again. And I do think that's sort of beautiful and crucial. My last thing I wanted to ask you, you have this new, your Legion comes out. When does that? Next week. Next week. Yeah. Oh, this is like, I didn't even know. This is yeah. like a little promotional. Sure. Is that why you timed it to now? No. <laughs> no. Are you worried that it doesn't work out? Uh, no. I'm thrilled to say no. Like, I feel... By the way, I don't mean the show. Yeah. I mean you making this transition. No, because I know, first of all, like you were saying, to leave something that I knew I could do, I still know I can do it. Um, if I ever feel like using that muscle again of criticism... Um, and if someone, if I haven't burned every bridge and if someone would have me, I, I could maybe go back and do it. I don't see that happening, by the way. Uh, if only because your whole entire life suggested you've never done that before. Going like, back? I, well, no, I don't have any interest in it, but maybe. Um, I could, I guess. But my feeling is the experience I had on, on Legion and on the thing that I'm working on now that I wish I could tell you about um, and other stuff that, that hopefully I'll be able to announce soon that, that is happening has been really wonderful because it's been really professionally fulfilling it's creatively fulfilling but also affirming because i think i can do it and i think i have something to offer you know um i've tried to be very clear that like legion is noah holly show hmm. a noah holly show is a noah holly show and i knew that before and i really know it now and i don't even mean that like in an ominous dictator way i mean like he is a visionary it's his vision and it's up to the writers in the room to try to understand his vision and contribute to it but I, but I know now that I can be in those rooms and contribute something. And so that's, it's really just, it's positive. It's exciting. With this year, like the next 12 months of the, or rather the next yeah. four years in this presidency. And, and, and I don't mean to get political. <laughs> because, because, and, because TV shows matter so much now. <laughs> well, I, that's my question is, yeah. do you feel like what you're doing is contributing to well, the, the betterment I'll, of, of, of I'll tell life? You this. I'll tell you this. 
I don't really know what anyone can do. I'm terrified. I don't know what art can do, but um, I do know that something I wrote uh, a couple months ago was came out of the way I was feeling, and that felt good to write something that reflected the way the debates made me feel. And then the thing that I'm working on now is super. Uh, I'm working on it for someone else, but it, you know, it's it's hugely ambitious, huge, hugely. It's it's a crazy thing. Um, but it's also very political, and that's great. That's exciting. It's exciting to be able to take the way you feel every morning and then put it into something else. And again, that sounds, it's a very selfish answer because that is not contributing to hashtag resistance. Although, <laughs> although when you walked in to my home, you saw, you saw the posters my, I saw the my posters. wife and daughter made. Mm-hmm. So I, I am doing that, um, but at least in terms of my own role. By the way, the I, I always dislike when you ha- hashtag something on a bomber podcast i'm like i don't like when people say that out loud. <laughs> sorry i had to do it um i'm glad you did it on my show too but i but for what but so i feel like we all have to take care of ourselves too in this moment and so i feel better about stepping back from the flame wars of the internet right stepping back from the instant whatever of twitter 140 characters stepping back from thinking about other people's stuff and instead just trying to put something more positive or creative out to the world and just stepping back in general because writing for the internet you get instant feedback every day and then you're grinding every day and so you know i've worked on three tv projects and have another one that's that's cooking only one is public and only one is right only one has um been filmed and is going to be airing starting next week my main takeaway um from what we've talked about but also watching your career go where it's gone there's an enthusiasm to the things you're doing I that, hope so. that I find um, it's good. It's good. I know it's weird for me to give you, you know, tell you this, but it, it's, uh, it's nice. Thank you. To, to see happen. And um, I hope wherever you go that, that, that is the guiding force. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I think it is an enormous gift and an enormous privilege to be able to jump from project to project like that. But for me, that's the thing. I, I want, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to lie, you know, and like, or bullshit and like writing f- four sentence record reviews in <laughs> Entertainment Weekly in 2007, 2008, 2009. I was grateful for the money, but it, that was not an inspiring thing to do. It's good that you constantly refuse settling. Yeah, I hope so. I, I feel like there's a, there's a, it's, I, I, that, that's an internet word to say privilege, but I, I do think it's a privilege to be able to have the opportunity to not settle right um but because you know and but sometimes it, as you said external forces shake you out of it yeah. like i i definitely if bill hadn't been let go by espn and it, what happened happened you know i very I, I still would have these unscratched itches i still would have wanted to see if i could have done these things if i could have moved out here and worked in this field but i don't know if i would have had the, the courage to do it to yeah. try it I'm glad you did. Thank you. Well, we'll find out on FX on February 8th. No. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that was good. That, thank you. Yeah, that won't be a referendum on me. Believe me. I just was lucky to be a part of it. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Andy. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was really fun. Well, there it is. The only person to thank this week is Andy himself, who uh, graciously let me record at his dining room table. When it comes to Andy's work, though, be sure to check out Legion, Noah Hawley's latest on FX. It premieres tomorrow night, Wednesday, February 8th. You can also regularly listen to Andy 
on The Watch, his podcast with Chris Ryan over at The Ringer. We'll include links and information to all of this in our show notes over at our website, www.talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Andy, there's probably a good chance you would enjoy our past conversations with ex-Grantlanders like Wesley Morris or Jay Caspian Kang. We've also had on Ringer favorites like Mackenzie Davis from Halt and Catch Fire and Zazie Beads from Atlanta. Also, in the new year, we're trying to have more people who listen to this podcast review the podcast. If you don't have iTunes or just don't want to write a review, just sharing a show with a friend could help us out a lot. All of this is done in the hopes that the show continues to reach new listeners. If you're not doing so already, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. And feel free, as always, to reach out to us at sam at talkeasypod.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod.com. Keep an eye out for a newsletter that we are sending out Today on Tuesday, we'll be sending those out every Tuesday. They will include uh, some background information on the making of the show. Be sure to keep an eye out for uh, the newsletter that we'll be sending out starting today and hopefully every Tuesday moving forward. It will include background information on the podcast, random thoughts about life in 2017, uh, a weekly Spotify playlist that I'm going to continue trying to make, information about a couple of exciting live shows that I think we're going to be doing in 2017 and uh, we'll probably do a couple giveaways it, it, I think it's going to be good so if you're into that sign up for the newsletter at tinyletter.com slash talk easy we'll also include that information in the show notes our music this week is by Jinsang and Vanilla our executive producer is David Chen graphics by Ian Jones illustrations by Krishna Shenoy our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. 
My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.